Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Because I want to discuss today Purim and just the primacy of Purim, which is really, I want to suggest, the holiday of oneness. And, and the holiday of unification. And not only that, but we're going to go, God willing, very deeply into the idea of what Purim is about. But what I'd like to suggest just at the outset is that Purim, more than any other holiday, gives you a very accurate explanation of what Judaism is, what Judaism means, what Judaism believes. And I would suggest more than any other Jewish holiday, Purim really explains the philosophy of our outlook on life. And so anyone who really wants to know more about what Jews believe, I think would be very well advised to study the holiday of Purim, because it's all collected there. And we have a tradition that when the world becomes rectified, of course the entire world is evolving toward perfection. And when the world reaches its state of perfection, this messianic era, they say that we're still going to celebrate Purim, which in itself is an amazing idea. But again, I I just bring this to tell you the primacy of, of Purim itself. And I think that a lot of the study of Purim, and rightly so, by the way, but a lot of the study of Purim revolves around understanding the, the account of what actually happened, Megillus Esther, in terms of just figuring out the story itself, and then levels within the text, and levels understanding the miracle of Purim. And that's all worthy. Or understanding the different mitzvahs that we do on Purim. Again, all very worthy. But the philosophy of Purim itself, in other words, the overarching thing, is what's talking about today, and the human condition, and what it means to be in exile. Because until the world is fixed, we're in a state of exile. And Purim is the explanation of exile, according to the Jewish view. So, with that in mind, let's talk about Purim, the holiday of oneness, but at the same time understand that we're just talking about reality itself, and every single day of the year, really, honestly. So that's how central these ideas are going to be. And we'll we'll go into it further. Now, I want to begin by sort of suggesting a lot of questions and maybe holding off on the answers until we develop it further. There's a very interesting teaching from, that I heard in the name of the Ari, which is that the word eitz, which is the Hebrew word for tree, eitz is spelled ayin sadi. And ayin is one of two Hebrew letters that are silent. The other... Uh, Silent letter is Aleph. So, so, so you spell tree, ayin, tzadi. Okay, so far so good. The Ari says that we have to get to a place where we spell the word tree, Aleph, tzadi. Again, it would still be pronounced as eights, but we have to change the ayin into an Aleph. What does that mean? So this is one teaching. Another teaching, and now we can start to get more into the body of the talk itself, 
is understanding Haman, who Haman was. And Haman, of course, is a descendant of Amalek. This is the enemy of the Jewish people. It's the enemy of God, the one who seeks to destroy us. And Amalek is, is functioning on a number of different levels. Amalek is, is functioning on the spiritual level. As such, it represents the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, that which tries to bring you down. But it's also a real entity, meaning to say that it's actually a people and in the here and now. And so Haman is the Amalekite. And so the sages ask a very amazing question in the Talmud. They say, where do you find the name Haman in the Torah? Meaning in the five books. Where do you find the name Haman? And that in itself is actually a very fascinating question. Because the whole account of Purim happens chronologically after the five books ends. Many years afterwards. So why would you expect to find the name Haman in the five books at all? And yet... The sages are operating from the assumption that everything is contained in the Torah. Remember, what is the Torah? The Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. Everything can be found in the Torah. The Torah is operating on zillions of different levels. And if you know how to delve within the depths of it, then you'll find the answers. Okay. So, so the assumption is the name Haman is certainly there. So where is the name Haman? So the answer is, and it's brought in Gomorrah Chulin on page 139b, if you want to look it up. It's brought that it comes from the words Hamin Ha'et. So that means that he, it's from the tree. You hear Hamin is the same letters, it's the same word as Haman. Okay? So that from the tree. So the simple explanation is, and remember, we were talking about trees when we first started. So now we're getting deeper into it, okay? So the simple explanation is that Haman hung from the tree. That was his end. And since a tree is, well, he hung from the gallows are made out of wood. And so since he, that was his end, there it is, Haman Haetz. Not only do you see his name, but you see what happened to him. Okay, all very good. Now that's the simplest level. But we have to go deeper. So, where is that passage to be found? Where are those words found, Haminai? And the answer is, in the account of the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. So, Hamin Ha'etz, which eights, which tree are they referring to in Hamin Ha'etz? They're referring to the tree of knowledge. And of course, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, that's what brought death into the world. So now this becomes very heavy because what the sages are doing, and they're just kind of hinting at it in the Gomorrah, but they're basically saying, okay, here's the key, now just go and run with it. What they're telling you is they're associating Haman, who sought to exterminate, to create a genocide of the entire Jewish people, to bring mass death to the Jewish people, that they're locating his origins in the Torah with the headquarters of death, which is eating from the tree of knowledge, which, which, which is what brought death into the world. You understand? Okay. So now, let's go further. Spiritually speaking, 
What actually happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge? And now I have to tell you something which I learned recently, which just blew my mind, right? Now this is from Rabbi Glazerson's book, Above the Zodiac. It's an English Torah book. I, I definitely recommend it. There's a lot of fantastic Torahs in there, and they're very accessible, and he's drawing from the best sources. So he brings this amazing source. Now, there are two ways to say tree, by the way. There are two ways to say tree. One, one way to say tree is eights, but there's another accepted way to say tree in, in Torah learning, and that's Elon. Okay? Now, Elon is the gematria, it's the numerical equivalent of 91. Now, we'll get into 91 in a little bit. 91 is a very important number in Torah philosophy. And the reason is, and now, what I'm about to tell you, this next section that we're going to do right now, you have to really try to understand this, and it's like Rib Shlomo would talk about certain things he would call cash Torahs. Cash Torah is a learning that you have to have in your pocket at all times. Okay? So this is... What I'm telling you right now, this is a cash Torah. So try to really understand it and to be able to say it over on your own. Okay? So Elon, which means tree, is the Gematria 91. Now 91 is important because it's the combination of two primary names of Hashem, of God. Now just as a, just a quick note of explanation... We've done it before, but it's always important to say. When we talk about different names of Hashem, we're only talking about the God of Israel. We're only talking about Hashem Yisbarach, right? Adonai. That's who we're talking about. Just be very clear. The God of Israel. The creator of heaven and earth. So that's the only person we're talking about right now. It's not a person, obviously. Beyond, beyond, beyond. As I tell my kids, he doesn't have a body. He makes bodies. He's beyond. All right? And we have to also understand something, which is that God fills the entire universe, but the universe doesn't equal God, and God doesn't equal the universe. Also very important, God fills the entire universe, and then exists dimensions beyond the universe, both at the same time. Okay? He fills the world and transcends the world. It's very important. That's Judaism, because just to say God equals nature and nature equals God, that's another religion. Very important. Okay? So now when we talk about different names of Hashem in the Torah understanding, what we're talking about is different ways that God interacts with His creation. Sometimes it will be through chesed, through rachamim, through mercy. Sometimes it will be through din, gvura, through strict justice. There are different ways that God manifests Himself in terms of His interactions with, with creation. Okay? So we use different names to signal the different wavelength, if you will, that God is operating at that moment. The different way he's revealing himself at that moment. Okay. And again, just to give just one more example, because it's very crucial to understand this point. Each of us has different names in our life. My name is David. Right? Some people call me Mr. Sachs. Right? Some people call me daddy. Some people, God willing, I'll have grandchildren who call me grandpa or something like this. So it's all just me 
But depending on who I'm interacting with, I manifest myself in a different way. Or they perceive me in a different way. And that's where the different names of God are coming from. Okay. Again, I'm sure you all know this, but we just, we really have to say this point. Now, there are two primary names of God in terms of understanding reality in general. Okay? There are more than two, but two primary ones. And both of these names add up to 91. It's the Yudke Vavke, right? Which is 26. And there's the name, which I'll explain to you in a moment, Aleph Dalid Nun and Yud, which is also pronounced Adonai, by the way. And, and that is 65. So 65 plus 26 equals 91. All right? So, so what are these two names of Hashem? Like, why is this so important? Why am I emphasizing this so much? Because they represent the infinite and the finite. The revealed and the not revealed. This world and the next world. God who is the master of borders, of everything within borders. God who transcends all of borders. That's what these two names represent. Now, the two sides of it is, the Yudke Vavke is that infinite aspect. That which is beyond, which is infinite, which is beyond borders, everything that we just said. And the other one, the Aleph, Dalud, Nun, and Yud, that name represents God who's basically master of the revealed, master of this world, master of nature. And there's another name of Hashem, which is more commonly associated with a lot of these ideas, which is Elohim. But thematically, it's very similar. Okay? Okay. So hopefully, you all have that and you'll be able to say that over. Elon is tree is the Gematria 91. 91 is the combination of these two names. The infinite and the finite. Master of this world, heaven and earth. All together. Now listen carefully. And this is the teaching that Rabbi Glazerson brings. That when Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, ate from the tree of knowledge, what they did was they separated these two names of Hashem. Meaning to say that when they went against God's wishes, that the this world aspect of reality, and God who is the master of all of existence, these two concepts became separated in terms of our perception of reality. See, this is a, do, you, do, you, do you hear how fundamental this idea is to understanding existence itself? In other words, the physical became detached in terms of our ability to perceive from the spiritual. They took on the illusion of two different entities. And then this is the beginning of all of exile itself. Because now we exist in what they call the world of separation, which is the illusion that we're apart from God. You see, we never stop being engulfed by God's oneness. What's the difference between someone who believes in one God and someone who believes in many gods? So a polytheist, someone who believes in many gods, says God is in the trees, and God is in the clouds, and God is in the streams, right? The monotheist, one who believes in one God, understands that 
we exist within God. And that God saturates all of existence. It's a completely different mindset. So when we go against God's will, and we did this in the, in, in, this is the understanding of the impact of eating from the tree of knowledge, all of a sudden we separate the revealed from that which isn't revealed, or that which is beyond perception. And we treat them as two different entities. And that gives birth to all idol worship and all polytheism. Because now we tend to look at physicality as an independent entity from existence itself. That there's more than one in the world. Now, let me introduce another thought that will approach this idea from another perspective. The number 91 is also the gematria for the word amen. Amen is a very important avoda. It's a very important heavenly service to do. You know, when you're around your home and your children or your spouse or your, whoever is in there makes a blessing, a lot of people will treat it casually, like they don't endeavor to say amen. Amen is a very big opportunity for you to say, and you should really teach your children and everyone to be very conscious of amen opportunities. They shouldn't be missed. In fact, the Gomorrah says, there's an argument in the Gomorrah, who gets more merit, the person who says the blessing or the person who says amen? And there's an opinion in the Gomorrah that the person who says amen gets more merit than the person who said the blessing. It's a little counterintuitive, but, and they have their explanation, but let's just stay on this track for now. But the important thing is to show you that the sages are taking great pains to tell you the importance of amen. Now, what is amen all about? And why does amen equal 91? And how does that tie into this discussion? Because amen means basically yes with an exclamation point. And the word emuna, which means belief in God, it's a very important word, emuna, the root of the word emuna is amen. So amen is to say, yes, belief, we believe, I believe. Very important. But now let's go deeper, okay? The idea is that when we ate from the tree of knowledge, we separated the revealed from that which is concealed. Because God is infinite. God, you know, it's hard to say that God is concealed. This is the great paradox of human existence. Because God is absolutely everywhere. God fills all of existence. But because he fills all of existence, it's hard to see him. You know, there's a phrase called hiding in plain sight. That's this concept. And many times I've given over you the example, but I'll I'll do it one more because it's discussing this point. I once imagined a conversation between two fish. And one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. So what's the joke? The joke is that there's nothing but water. That's the only thing that's going on. But because it's all pervasive, they can't see the water. So this is us. We dwell amidst, we're swimming in the love of God. 
That's it. We're, we're engulfed, we're completely immersed within godliness. But because we're in such a total immersion type experience, we can't see it. You know, one of the holy things that we do, the way Jews pray, is that when we declare God's oneness, we say, hopefully we'll have time to go into the Shema and how that relates to all this. But we cover our eyes and, and the idea of when you're covering your eyes when you say Shema is, I heard this from Rabbi Blech, is that basically what you want to do is you want to see past the superficial layer of reality where it looks like there are many powers, where it looks like there's a, a multiplicity instead of a oneness. And so when you declare God's oneness with the Shema, you cover your eyes in order to tap into what's going on behind the curtain of superficial reality, into the oneness that informs all of existence. Okay? So now let's get back to this idea of Amen. Amen is 91. We said that 91 is the name of these two aspects of God, right? The physical and the spiritual, if you will. Or, or rather, the revealed aspect of this universe. And, and the infinite and the finite. However, there are many ways of, of saying it, right? So, so when you make a blessing over, say, an apple, and you say, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that this apple came from God. In other words, it's not just, I have an apple, this is my apple, I planted the tree, it's mine, it belongs to me, I don't care how it grew, all I know is it's my apple and I'm going to eat it. I bought it from the store, it's mine, I earned the money fairly, that's my apple. So what do we do? When we say a blessing, we say, ah, this apple came from God. And now do you hear how you're unifying you're making a very big unification when you do that. When you say a blessing, you're saying this thing, this physical object came from the infinite one who bestows everything upon us. You're tying these two things together. And then after you make that statement, that blessing, you say, Amen. I believe that this is true. And now you've performed a tremendous unification. And that's why Amen is 91 because it's getting these two names of God back together. The two names that became separated when we ate from the tree of knowledge. When we experienced this dislocation of godliness in the world and, and, and misappropriated it. Now we're putting it back together again. And now with this in mind, let's return back to our first teaching. That the idea of, from, that I heard in the name of the Ari, that we've got to take the name Eitz, which means tree, which begins with, remember it's spelled ayin, which is a silent letter in Hebrew, ayin tzadi, and we have to turn the ayin into an aleph, aleph tzadi, right? So now, what does ayin mean? Ayin means eyes. It's not just the name of a letter in Hebrew. It's also the, the, a word. It means eyes. And it's the gematria number 70, Okay? Now, 70 is the number of nations in the world. In other words, 70 is a, is a and, and, and one's eyes, is the primary source of seeing multiplicity as opposed to unity in the world. So what we want to do is take the ayin 
and turn it into an Aleph. Aleph is the Gematria 1, which stands for the oneness of God. In other words, we want to turn multiplicity into unity. We want to see that the force behind everything is the oneness of God. And now, listen to this. When we change the ion of eights into an aleph of eights, what does that add up to? Aleph Tzadi is 91. Unbelievable. In other words, when we see that everything emanates from the oneness of God, we're able to rectify the sin of the tree of knowledge and put these two names of God back together again and to restore this understanding of unity in the world. So now, now I want to go further and approach this subject from another point of view, but we're still talking about the same thing. And, you know, there's, we've studied it before. We've studied it before, so hopefully this concept won't be, but there are 12 months. Sometimes there's a 13th month, but that's, for the most part, the basic structure of creation is 12 months. And Adar is happening, Adar is the month that Purim falls in, okay? Adar is the twelfth month. Now, the name Adar itself is very interesting. And based on what we've been talking about, you'll be able to understand something deep about the name of Adar. Adar is spelled Aleph Dalid Resh. Now, Dar, Dalid Resh, basically is the root in Hebrew to dwell, right? To live, to live in this place. Like a dira, kind of this, this, this concept. So, the idea of Adar is that we want to make a dwelling place for the Aleph. In other words, Aleph, which stands for the oneness of God, we want to bring it into this world and reveal it so that the Aleph is dwelling within God. So that which is concealed becomes revealed. And that these two things become integrated. That's why we're also reading the Parshas of Truma and all in Adar. Because that's talking about building the Mishkan, building the sanctuary, which is the dwelling place of God, the headquarters of godliness in the world. Even though God fills the whole world, but that's the headquarters. Okay? So all of that is contained within the name Adar. Now, Adar is a fascinating month because, as I said, it's the it's the last month of the year. All right? Now, Nisan is the first month of the year. And you've got this amazing kind of duality that's taking place simultaneously. Nisan is, has the word, Nis means miracle. Nisan is the month where we leave Egypt, where we celebrate Pesach, Passover. It's the month of miracles. It's a month of total clarity. So Nisan is the first month of the year. Adar is the last month of the year. In other words, it's the month of concealment. It's the month that's furthest away from the clarity of Nisan. So as such, it makes perfect sense that Adar should be the month of Purim. 
Because Purim is all about the fact that God is there even when you think he's not there. That God fills the entire world and that it's all one, even amidst the perception of concealment. And now we can understand something very deep and beautiful, which is that the mazel, translated as the zodiac sign of Adar, is the fish, Pisces. And what are we just saying? The fish swim around, and they're completely engulfed by God, but they don't see the water. So this is the idea of the concealment of Adar. It's so apparent, and amidst its complete obviousness, it's completely concealed, simultaneously. Both are happening at the same time. And one of the explanations Rabbi Glazerson brings of the two fish, right, of Adar, the mazel of Adar, is that one stands for the oral law and one stands for the written law. So what are these waters that we're swimming in? It's the waters of Torah. Because remember, the Gemara says whenever we're talking about water, we're talking about Torah. And we know that God created the entire world out of the Torah. He looked into the Torah and then he created the world. And he made the world out of the Hebrew letters. So we are swimming in Torah literally. And yet, it's so all-pervasive, we can't even see it. It's simultaneously completely revealed and concealed. So this is the work of Adar. This is the work of Purim. Now, now you understand, hopefully from everything I'm telling you, you understand what I was trying to tell you in my introduction, that Purim is the holiday that is the gateway to understanding the entire Jewish outlook on life, the entire understanding about the human condition. Okay. Now I want to go, I want to go into something, something, you know, before, just make a bit of a, not a digression, but to catch up on one more teaching before we proceed into a further, deeper understanding of Adar as the 12th month, okay? I, I, I just want to add one more thought to this idea of eights being spelled with an ayin, and that this thought that I heard in the from the Ari, that we want to change that ayin into an alf. Remember, when it's an alf, then it's 91 and everything is integrated again. But what about when it's an ayin? Just the normal state of eights. Okay? So I thought to myself, you know something that would be really interesting, since we know with an alf it equals 91, and that's a total rectification. I wonder what the gematria of eights correlates with. What words does it correlate with when it's an ayin? So I thought to myself, it should be something negative, right? Something that, that hints at exile. So I looked it up. And you know what? The first word that correlates in the Torah with the word eights with, a, with an ayin, the, the normal spelling of eights, meaning tree, meaning the tree of knowledge, is kain. Kain is the, the one who murders Hevel. Concealment. Kain was jealous of Hevel. Why is a person jealous? So Reb Shlomo put it perfectly in one, one sentence. He said, you know what jealousy is? Thinking that someone else has... That's the psychology of jealousy. Right? It's not just you want what he has. It's deeper than that. You think what he has is yours. That's very deep. And if you understand that, that is the, that's the escape hatch from getting rid of that negative 
attribute if a person struggles with that. To understand that, no, that isn't mine. That's his. That's why he has it and I don't. Doesn't mean you can't still want it and strive for it. But he doesn't have your thing. Don't hate him for having your thing because it's not yours. So kind is with is the spelling of eights. You want to hear something? I mean, if you, you can't hear it. You can't hear it more, more exactly than this. The gematria is also nofel. Do you know what nofel means? To fall down. Meaning falling down spiritually. What happens? You know, we, call, we talk about the fall from grace. I don't know if that's a Jewish phraseology, but that's what happens when we ate that. That separation produced a fall, a spiritual fall, a plummet. And it was like a dimensional, multidimensional plummet. But nonetheless, contained with the ayin sadi spelling. Then here are a, a, a couple more words. You ready? To, to blasphemize. Am I pronouncing it right? Blasphemy. That's also the Gematria 160. Right? The, uh, in, in Vayikra 2416. Okay? Because when there's a seeming separation, then you blasphemize. Right? That's blasphemy. Here's another one. Kilel, which means cursed. All these words correlate with Ayin Sadi. Amazing, no? So, and then I'll give you one more. Kesef, which means money. Because a lot of times we look at money as power and that the rich person is the one who's really running the world, not God. In other words, again, this is the roots of idol worship. You know, correlating money with ultimate power. All of these things are contained with the Ayin Sadi spelling that we're trying to rectify by getting these names back together, which is that everything comes from God. Okay, so now let's go back to this idea and try to understand on a deeper level how, what it means that Adar is happening in the 12th month. So the twelfth month, we said, is the essence of concealment because it's the month that's furthest away from Nisan, which is clarity and redemption. But remember, and here's the amazing twist, which is just another of a zillion reasons why the Torah is so cool, is that what this month, which is total concealment, I mean, but it's hiding in plain sight, as we said, what is the month after Adar? In other words, it circles back or it spirals back into total revelation. So, you know how they talk about it's always darkest before the dawn. This is the darkness before the dawn. Okay. Now, we've learned before <clears throat> that, every, that, that the, this ineffable name of Hashem, the yud ke vav standing for God's Infinity and his rachamim, his kindness, that there, mathematically, there are 12 different permutations of this name of Hashem. And that each month has a different permutation of the name of God. It's called the tziruf. Okay? So the tziruf of Nisan, meaning the permutation, the, the arrangement of the letters, they're all different ways of combining the letters, 12 different ways. And each month has one. 
So, understandably, the Tziruf of Nisan is the simple spelling of God's name. Yud and He and Vav and He. Meaning to say that there's no scrambling of the letters at all because it stands for total revelation and clarity. Okay? Because if you're going to have 12 combinations, one of them has to be the normal spelling. So Nisan is the normal spelling. Okay, very good. Now with that in mind, what do you think Adar's combination is? So I was thinking about this. I was thinking, well, if Adar is the furthest away from Nisan, and it stands for the greatest concealment, Adar should be the name of Hashem spelled backwards. That, that's what I thought. But it's not that. And then I saw that the Ari asked the same question. The Shemi Shmuel, the grandson of the Kutzka Rebbe, and let me just tell you, just because it's one of my favorite stories, something just so you should know who the Shemi Shmuel was, besides being one of the greatest Torah luminaries. So, so the Shemi Shmuel had a yeshiva, and you can imagine the, the heights of Torah study in Poland in this period, during the heart of the, you know, Hasidic golden period with all the Rebbes, and he was right there, and he had one of the top yeshivas. So who his students were like the, the, the top in the world, okay? And he calls up the father of one of the students, and he says, I'm expelling your son. And the father says, isn't he learning well? And the Shem Mishmol says, well, he's probably the best student here. And he says, well, then why are you kicking him out? And he says, because I see that when he learns, there's no tears in his eyes. Meaning to say, if anyone who considers themselves serious about understanding any of these things, thinks that this is an intellectual pursuit that we're doing right now, doesn't, hasn't even crossed the threshold into actual learning. It has to be the mind and the heart together. It has to be unifying absolutely everything, the intellect and the emotions. Real life and real actions and real transformation has to come from this. If it doesn't, then you haven't even entered into the room of what these teachings are about. So the Shem Mishmur brings the Ari, who says that really the combination, the Tziruf of Adar, should be the name of Hashem spelt in the opposite direction. But because of the prayers of Mordechai and Esther, they were switched around. The fabric of reality itself was switched around because the way that Hashem's name is spelled in each of the months, the combination is hinting at how Hashem is revealing Himself at that juncture in time. So really it was a time of strict justice because the Yudke Vavke is this name of Hashem which stands for Rachamim, which stands for mercy. And the reversal of that name stands for strict judgment. Strict judgment. Now, which month has the name of Hashem reversed? So the answer is Tammuz. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. Because Tammuz is the month that, that contains the beginning of the three weeks 
leading up to the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, Tishabav, right? Which is this is the the darkest period of our calendar. Not only that, but Tammuz is the beginning when the Maraglim, the spies, started out on their journey to look at Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and brought back the bad report, which put us into the entire nation, into 40 years of wandering in the desert, where the whole nation dies out. And basically, a lot of the sages say that's really why Moshe doesn't enter into the land of Israel, because he was connected with the sin of the spies on some level, meaning to say that they came to him, and he allowed them to go. And so when it says later on that it's because he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, that what this opinion is, is stating is that, yes, it's true he went against the will of Hashem right then, but really that, that at that moment he was being punished, so to speak, for his involvement with the spies. But Hashem wanted to separate his judgment from the judgment of the spies because it was on a completely different level. And to have lumped Moshe in with the spies would have been a completely, to, would be to completely misunderstanding his level of culpability and his role in that event. So God separates it. But meaning to say that all of this goes back to Tammuz. <laughs> so it makes sense that Tammuz is the name where you see this strict justice of Hashem exhibiting itself. And that's why it's spelled backwards, the name of Hashem for that month. Okay. But now we see the awesome power of prayer. Because that was meant to be the combination for Adar. And what happens instead is that Mordechai and Esther and all of the Jewish people pray. And they don't just pray. We're going to get into it in a moment, how much they pray. They literally shifted the DNA of time and space with their prayers. It's amazing. Amazing what, what, what transpired there. Now, what did transpire there? Esther says, all the people, I'm going to go and see the king. And all the people have to fast for three days. Now, listen to this. All of Israel, all of the Jewish people, fasted for three days. Now, you know, for some reason, not until this year did it really hit me. What, what, you know, I've said it dozens of times. And then we fasted for three days. But wait a second. Every man, woman, and child, we fasted for, everyone fasted for three days? That means if you were there, you fasted, have you ever fasted for three days? Have you ever fasted for two days? I mean, many of us haven't even fasted one day. Fasted for three days in a row, everyone. Now that's got to be, and that's sort of like a PS on the story of, of Purim, that's got to be probably the greatest spiritual heights we ever reached as a people. I mean, in history. Now you say, well, wait about when we were at Mount Sinai. Well, I think that it can only be rivaled by Mount Sinai. And, interestingly, in the Megillah it says, Kimu Kiblu, and that we accepted these things. And the sages say what that means was at the, the, the generation that fasted for three days accepted the Torah on a level that was, it wasn't even accepted at, at Mount Sinai. And that's a whole field of study in itself, but just to sum it up, basically, when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, it was done with such spiritual pyrotechnics, meaning to say, you know, we were in the middle of the desert, it said, 
dawn, the whole mountain spurts into flowers. People's souls were flying out of their bodies and were being resurrected. There was a chauffeur blast, which got louder and louder and louder. Like when a human blows the chauffeur, it gets louder and then softer. It just kept getting louder. The mountain breaks out in flames, right? There's darkness that Moshe like enters into. He like enters into heaven in front of our eyes. We could hear colors and see words. I mean, it was awesome. Not only that, but it says that God held Mount Sinai above our heads and said, if you accept the Torah, good. If you don't, this will be your burial place. So, I mean, it was awesome. It was awesome. Because if you think about the Torah and the mitzvahs, and you think about the fact that we had been slaves for hundreds of years, hard labor, spirit-destroying labor, if you're set free, the last thing I think a person would want to do was to enact a rigorous set of rules in their life and controls in their life. And I'm just talking about normal human, because that's who was there, normal human beings. Why would we ever take on these things? Why would a normal person ever take on these restrictions in their life? Unless something happened. Unless something beyond this world transpired, which it did. In other words, I'm just giving you a key. If you want to just trace back all the practices of the Jewish people and all the things we do and don't do, why would we ever do that? Something happened. This is what happened. So, so the point is, though, that when God gave us the Torah in this way, he took away our free choice on some level. Because we saw so clearly that it was from God that we didn't accept it on a human level. Or, put another way, we accepted it on a level of yira, but not necessarily meaning awe, but not, or fear, depending on how you translate that, but not necessarily on the level of ava, love. Another paradigm that people say is that we accepted the written law, the Torah Shebek but we didn't necessarily accept the Torah Shebel Pev, the oral law, at that point. And so what happened was, at Purim, when we fasted for three days and we were able to absolutely just rearrange the spiritual DNA of the universe, transforming Hashem's name being spelled backwards, so to speak, into the spelling that I'm about to get to, by the way, because we're going to go into what the actual spelling of Adar is, and it's very deep. That transformation that we reached was, was the full acceptance of the Torah. Kimu v'kiblu, where we accepted it out of love, where we accepted the oral Torah, where we accepted it from a level of total free choice. All those things is what happened during Purim. All those things were the spiritual benefit of this exalted level that we reached by all coming together as one and that level of prayer that happened during the three days of fasting. Now, the three days of fasting takes place on Pesach. This is another mind-blowing thing for people who don't know what the timeline of Purim is. Purim happened on Pesach. 
Now, you might be saying, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Purim is an Adar. Pesach is in Nisan. What are you talking about? If you look in the Megillah, and this is not any Medrash or anything like that, these are the dates that are in the Purim Megillah itself. Just look in the book itself. You'll see what I'm saying is just straight out, right in front of your face. What he sought to do was he wants to eradicate the Jewish people. So he put his plan into effect in the month of Nisan. Okay? Now, how did he do it? This is a very cool teaching, if you don't know it. What he did was, he had three dice. Okay? And he was using, like, black magic, basically. And he wants to know, when is the time that's most appropriate where the Jewish people are most vulnerable? And he decides that it's... It, that he announces each month, and then he rolls the dice. And he was looking for a certain combination of the dice, and I'll tell you what it was in a moment. So he'd say the name of the month, roll the dice, and if he didn't get what he was looking for, he'd say the next month and roll the dice, and then the next month and roll the dice. Finally, he gets what he's looking for in the month of Adar. And he's very excited because that's the month where Moshe died, Zion Adar. And he figures that's when the Jewish people were vulnerable. Now, what was he looking for? Now, I don't know if you know how a die, that's singular for dice, for how a die is constructed, but the opposite ends add up to seven. So, in other words, if one is on top, six is on the bottom. If three is on top, four is on the bottom. That's how every die is constructed. You can check it out, okay? So, a Malik, Haman, is from the nation of a Malik, which is identified with Gog. Okay, like when we talk about the apocalyptic war, right? The ultimate confrontation with evil. It's the, the war of Gog Magog. Gog is evil, basically. Okay? So that's his strength, Gog. Gog is spelled Gimel, Aleph, Gimel. All right? So in Gematria, Gimel is three, Aleph is one, Gimel is three. So he's looking for three, one, three. Right? That will be ascendant, because those are the ones on top. Now, if 313 is on top, what's on the bottom is 464. Right? Because 3 and 4 is 7, 1 and 6 is 7, 3 and 4 is 7. So if Gog is on top, 313, he wants 464. What is 464? David. Dalit, Vav, Dalit. That stands for. Mashiach, because King David is the messianic line. So he's looking for the ascendancy of Gog over Mashiach, over David. So when he says Adar, he rolls 313, and he's like, that's the month. That's the month. But the sages point out that what he didn't know was that, yes, it's true, Moshe dies in Adar, but he was also born in Adar, right? Because there is no escape from God because God fills the entire universe. There's no escape from God. And who are the Jewish people? They're the revealers of God's oneness in the world. That means there's no escape from the Jewish people. We're not going anywhere. You can talk about trying to destroy us all you like. We're the ones who reveal the oneness of God in the world. We're not going anywhere because God's not going anywhere. So, so now listen to this. What is the spelling 
of the month of Adar in terms of Hashem's name? What is the spell? The answer is Hey Vav Yud. That's the combination of the Yud K Vav K. Hey Hey Vav Yud. So now I'm thinking, kind of on my own, I'm thinking, well, Hey Hey Vav Yud, if we're saying that Adar is the last month, so I get this idea. So this is my idea. I haven't seen this anywhere. But it makes sense. I'm thinking that the Jewish calendar, meaning the 12-month cycle, starting with Nisan, ending with Adar, should be a microcosm of human history. Meaning to say, and there's an opinion in the Gomorrah that the world was created in Nisan, and Nisan represents total revelation of God's oneness, which is like Garden of Eden, that's like the beginning, right? Adar represents total concealment, which is like deepest exile, and that represents the end. And in the end... Right? We say, Ketz HaMashiach, the end of days. In the end of days, that's when Mashiach comes. So it seems to me that the words, that the combination of Hashem's name, which comes about, says the Ari, through the prayers of Haman, and, uh, rather, through the prayers of Esther and Mordechai, that that should signal Mashiach. So now, every combination of Hashem's name for each month correlates with a different verse in the Torah. Now, usually what it is, it's either the, what they call Roshe Tevos or Sofe Tevos. Meaning to say, it's, it will be, each of the letters of the combination of the Tziraf of Hashem's name will be the first letter of a word in the Torah, four consecutive words, or the last letter of a word, four, last, four words consecutive, last letter of each of the four words, okay? One or the other. Those are just two systems where you can pack a lot into a little. We're just with initials. It's an acronym, basically. You know, you can get, you can reference a phrase. So I'm thinking to myself, I got to look up the phrase of Adar. Because to see if Adar correlates with Mashiach, what that phrase is from the Torah. So it's, it's, it's in Breshis, and it's chapter 49, verse 11. And it's these four words. Okay? Ero. Ends with hey. Velasreka ends with hey. Bini ends in yud. Asona ends in vav. Hey, yud vav. Okay? So, so I'm thinking, okay, so let's see. What's, what is it? What is it? You know, what, what's going on with those words? So it's the blessing that Yaakov Avinu gives on his deathbed to Yehuda. And I'm thinking, ah, all right, because Yehuda is the tribe of King David, which is the Messianic line. So I thought, okay, so there it is. So I, but these blessings that Yaakov gives are very poetic and they're very complicated. And you have to look in the commentaries to be able to understand it. So I look in Rashi, and Rashi's got a whole thick paragraph on just these words. And now, what I was talking about was just the beginning of the beginning. So I'm going to tell you just quickly what Rashi says on these words. Now, just to give you a free English translation of it, basically what it's talking about is that, a, that the blessing is that a, someone who's a member of Yehuda, and by the way, we're all considered Yehuda now. Yehuda, Yehudim, that's where the word Jew comes from, is from Yehuda. So we're all included in this. That Yehuda, a person from Yehuda, will go to a tree, to a vine, with his donkey, 
and that the clusters of grapes are going to be so enormous that when, from one vine branch, he's going to be able to fill everything that a donkey can carry from one branch of a vine. So it's talking about massive amounts of grapes and wine. <laughs> okay? So, so now, let's just, this is the simplest level. Let's just take a moment to understand this. Wine in Hebrew is yayin. Wine is what the miracle was done through. You know, because when Esther threw these banquets for Ahasuerus, they were wine feasts. Okay? Now, wine, amazingly, yayin is gematria 70, which is famously also the gematria of the word sod, which means secrets. And as they say, when the wine goes in, the secrets come out. <laughs> right? Just on a human level. But the idea also being that just that there's going to be outpourings of secrets. So, so that's correlated with the end of days also. And what we see, and this is a very important point, I want you to really try to understand this. What we see right now is an outpouring of secrets in today's age. As we get closer to the end of days, as we get closer to the final perfection of the world, there's an outpouring of secrets. Now, what's interesting is, the way God does it is, it's all in the form of science and technology, right? But what God is doing is just telling you is how he runs the world and everything that's going on. But he does it in the name of science, quote unquote, in order to maintain free choice. You see, this is this amazing. Here you see, I mean, to use this phrase, I I use this with great caution, the brilliance of God, the genius of God. I mean, that's the understatement of the, you know, of eternity. But just to show you how amazing God guides creation. Just listen to this feat that he's pulling off in front of our eyes. There is only God. That is the only thing that's going on. So, of course, science and technology are just all descriptions of different possibilities within godliness. Right? But what God has done is, if you all saw that, every time you read a scientific article or whatever it is, you saw that as another manifestation of God, it would take away your free choice. So God puts it as science, quote unquote, which means that there are people who are able to point to these wild manifestations of God's infinity under the rubric of secularism. In other words, God can expose himself, so to speak, in the most, reveal himself in the most amazing way, and yet he can do it in such a way where he's openly revealing himself, and yet if you don't want to believe you actually have your disbelief reinforced by the revelation of these secrets. Because you go, no, this is science. This isn't religion. You go, no, no, this is exactly why I'm telling you it's about science and not religion. Do you hear the joke that's being played on people? A tremendous joke that's being played. Every time you read about a scientific advance, God is showing you his awesomeness. And yet people use that information to say, you see, it's science, it's not religion. So God reveals himself and simultaneously conceals himself. And it's up to the person to see the truth. Okay. So now, let's start to finish up, okay? So, so, so that's one level. 
Now, I looked in the Rashi. So it's a, a person in Yehuda will come with his donkey and put massive amounts of grapes. Remember, this is the phrase which is correlating with the tziruf, the combination of Hashem's name for Adar, which is the 12th month, which stands for the end of days. So theoretically, this should be talking about the end of days. So now, Rashi continues and he says, you know, he, he quotes the Targum Ankelos, and also, I saw another note that says that the Targum Yonasan ben Uziel, which is really the secrets of the Torah, is saying the same thing. That this word for donkey, Iro, actually contains the word ear. Ayin Yud Rech. Ear means city. And it's referring to Yerushalayim. And the Jewish people in Yermi are referred to as Hashem's vine planting, which means that what this phrase is referring to is the Jewish people returning to Yerushalayim. Which is, of course, that's the messianic scenario. The Jews are going back to Israel. That's what this phrase of Adar is talking about. Not only that, but this other word, Asona, the Targum Anklos links to a word from Yecheskel and says that, you know what that word means? The Beis HaMikdash. That we're talking about rebuilding the Beis and if you look at the end of the Purim account, Esther and Achishveros have a baby, have a son, and he has a son. I believe this is the correct genealogy, that it's the grandson of Esther, is the one who becomes king and the one who signs off on the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. So all that is the progeny of Esther. And finally, it talks about how the, the rest of this Pasuk, it's not contained within those four words, but it's within the exact same Pasuk as those four words. So it's part of the same thought. It's still part of the Adar thought. It says that we'll basically wash our robes in the blood of grapes, like a very interesting phraseology. And Rashi brings that what this is referring to is the purple royal garments, right? Machus, kingship. What do we say? Melech, this... Right? The great prophet who will emerge right? from the Jewish people. And then Rashi ends seemingly on a non sequitur. But to me, it's like, oh no, that's the payoff of this entire discussion. He says that this other word, you have to look it up in the Rashi, 49.11, Breshis, Genesis, that it's also talking about the colorful clothes that a woman wears in order to raise the desire of her husband for intimacy. That the colored clothes, that this is also talking about when you're talking about laundering your clothes in the blood of grapes, that it's also referring to this desire that's aroused between husband and wife. And that's so awesome, because what that's talking about is what we call dveikas. That level of intimacy and clinging which is the end of days. That is the next evolution in terms of history. Basically, where God is not just revealed and His oneness is revealed, but we're just completely cleaving to His oneness on an openly conscious level. So, so, so that's the tziruf. That's the pasuk, the, the verse that correlates with the combination of the letters of the name for the month of Adar, right? Which is really, as you can see, in the most open way,
in the most open way, talking about the end of days. And so now, really, I just want to end with one last thought, which is the following. The Magid of Mezrich, it's the successor of the Basham, brings this teaching. He says that, that a person, and this is a very basic teaching about Purim, it's one of the halachas, one of the laws of Purim, a person has to reach the level where they, where cursed is Haman, is indistinguishable in their mind to blessed is Mordechai. Now, the, there are different ways to achieve that state, and one must strive to achieve that state, is commanded to achieve that state on Purim, Wednesday night this year. Wednesday and Thursday. Usually that takes place at the Suda, at the festive meal, which is usually Thursday afternoon, before Sunday. So, and remember, this Wednesday is a fast day. So, by the way, just to, to finish the previous thought, about how Purim happens on Pesach. So, 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 Haman was rolling the dice in Nisan, and the day that seemed to be, to, that the Jews would be vulnerable to, to Haman's attack was in Adar. So in other words, he decreed that the destruction would happen 11 months from now. Mordechai finds out through Ruach HaKodesh, through prophecy, Mordechai finds out about the plan right away in Nisan, even though that the death date, the extermination date, was marked for the end of the year. Mordechai finds out about it right away. Okay? And he tells Esther, you have to go into the king right now. Now, there's a famous back and forth in the Megillah that you may not have understood, but now you'll understand it. She says, he's going to call me. He hasn't called me in for a while. He's going to call me in and... You know, within the next 30 days. What's the hurry? There's a law. If you go in without being asked, you'll be killed. What's the hurry? Now you understand why she wasn't. You think Esther, one of the greatest people that ever lived, was being lackadaisical about the fate of the Jewish people, the survival of the Jewish people? It's impossible. But she understood that the extermination date was 11 months away. That's why she was saying, what's the hurry? Do you understand? So Mordechai says, no, you have to go in right now. And why was he telling her that she has to go in right now? Because the way I understand it is, just think of it in terms of like the physics of spirituality, in terms of leveraging energy, right? There is a death decree on the whole Jewish people. If you want to have the spiritual might in order to reverse that, you have to have your own life on the line. So because she would have died, theoretically walking in because that was the law. He could have killed her. By leveraging that spiritual power, she's putting her life on the line. She was able to flip over the death decree on the Jewish people. You hear? So that's why she had to go in right away. And by the way, it's a very important lesson in terms of our own spirituality. Extremely important. Let's say I ask you to write a check for a certain tzedakah, for a certain charity or cause. And you go, okay, I'll do it. So, you know, let's say you want to give, I'm making up a number, you want to give $1,000, okay? So, you wait. You wait. So, so, a month from now, I'll write the check. So, I write the check, and I do the, I, I keep my word. I do exactly what I say. I write $1,000 check, the check clears. It's the same $1,000 out of the bank. But let me tell you something. If you do it the same day, even though at the bank, in the here and now level, $1,000 still the 
exact same numbers in your bank statement. What you spiritually accomplish, it's a different mitzvah. It's, it, it's a completely different mitzvah. We say, well, wait a second, the same, it's the same money. I'm telling you, the spirituality that you're leveraging when you do it quickly, when you do it right away, when you overcome your desire not to do it and to put it off, when you do it in the moment, we call this running to do a mitzvah. It's a different mitzvah, even though you say it's the same mitzvah. But this is what I'm telling you. It's a different mitzvah in terms of the levels of transformation in the world that you're able to accomplish. Okay. So now you understand. Now, when Esther says they have to fast for three days, what three days were those? The days of Pesach. In other words, we weren't eating matzah. That Pesach, we didn't eat matzah. We fasted. Now, if you were to ask me, what should we do? There's a death decree on the Jewish people. I would say, we've got to eat the matzah. Every bite, we've got to concentrate on the oneness of Hashem, right? We've got to, we've got to, we've got to do this, the greatest Seder that ever took place. And then maybe that will find... Esther said, there's not going to be a Jewish people. We have to fast right now. And so, and if you want to know the, well, how much we respect women in, in, in Judaism, despite various slanders from people who are ignorant, you know, the Gadol Ador, the head of the generation, Mordechai, gets this instruction from his wife to fast on Pesach and not eat matzah, which is one of the biggest commandments in the entire Torah. And he goes, all right, we'll do it. And she then becomes the leader and the salvation comes through her. Well, through everyone, but primarily we say Megillus Esther. Right? It's Esther. It's the, if you have to pick one person, you know, it's Esther. So, so, so now, understand this. What did we say? Nisan, which is when Passover happens. Nisan is the ultimate revelation of godliness, right? Remember, Nisan has the word nes, which means miracle in it, openly revealed. Remember, the combination of Hashem's name for Nisan is Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey. It's clear. It's no scrambling. It's outright. So when did the hanging of Mordechai and the reversal of everything happen? The whole thing that we celebrate on Purim happened during Pesach. And Purim represents the concealment of God or the revelation of Hashem amidst the concealment. So, Purim happens on Pesach. In other words, everything that's hidden becomes revealed on the holiday of Revelation. Meaning to say, remember we said that Nisan is the first month, Adar is all the way on the bottom in the twelfth month? But then what happens after Adar? Nisan. <laughs> after concealment, Revelation. But historically, the holiday of revelation amidst concealment happens on the holiday of revelation. Pesach. Incredible. And it's all there. This is all right in the Megillah itself. So let me get back to the Maggid of Mezrich, and then we'll really sum it up. Short teaching, but very powerful. So we have to get to this place of saying that 
we don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. So we get to this through drinking wine. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it in an alcohol-free way is to take a nap. And that's also a real opinion. You take a nap on Purim, you go to sleep, and then because when you're asleep, you can't tell the difference between the two. Okay? Another way of doing it is getting so blissed out on love that you, it's all one. Because remember, in Hebrew, Ava, love, is the same gematria as Echad, oneness. Love and oneness. Same concept, okay? But now listen to what the Maggid of Mesrich says. That what is Christus Haman is those aspects of our life that we don't enjoy doing. Paying the rent. Dealing with difficult people. Work. All this stuff that we just don't enjoy doing. That what we've got to do is get to the place where we can't tell the difference between Christus Haman and all the things that we enjoy in life. Blessed is Mordechai, that those things should become one in our mind because we have to understand that whatever we're doing, 24-7, we're interacting with God. And that all are different ways of God revealing himself in this world. And we have to reach that oneness. And now, what did we say, going back to the very beginning, and now we're wrapping it all up, going back to the very beginning, that we caused a separation between the revealed quality of Hashem, and the, or rather, we made this like separation in, when we ate from the tree. Remember, separating 91, the tree, or that's the rectification of the tree with, it, with an aleph. That's what we want to get back to. But this Elon, this other name for a tree, which is Gematria 91, which is we separated aleph, dalad, nudin, yud, and yud, vavke, the infinite and the finite, and they seem like separate entities to us. Okay, so we've got to get them back together. Now, now when we see that everything comes back from God, we put them back together. Now, let's go back to this. So listen to this. Megillus Esther. Do you know what Megillus Esther means? Well, we talk about it, the scroll of Esther. But Megillah means revealing. Esther comes from Haster Panum, which means the concealed. Megillus Esther means revealing the concealed. And so what's Purim all about? Putting the Megillah with the Esther. Showing how the revealed and the concealed is all one. So this entire shir, everything that I've told you right now, is all contained within the words Megillus Esther. It's all contained within that word, Megillus Esther. Those two words joining the concealed with the revealed and putting them back together again. Hashem should bless us that we should see the full revelation of Hashem's oneness and celebrate Pesach this year in the base of Migdash in Yerushalayim, Merakadosh. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.